Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ah, oh, hello everybody. Welcome back to another brand new episode of Decoding the Unknown. <laughs> this is like the... <laughs> This morning, uh, my internet at my office hasn't been working the entire morning because as I've brought up before on this channel and others, Vodafone are the worst company in the world. And I made a video about Nestle and Enron and all of this Vodafone, guys. Vodafone. And they phone them up and they're like, enter your customer number. And I'm like, what the fuck is my customer number? So I'm just left recording stuff, which is fine. I don't mind it. But I'd also like if my internet works, because then I could do all the other shit that I need to do in my life. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Also, there's no no way for me to look up pronunciations, because, uh... Not that I really do anyway. But now I've definitely got an excuse, because the internet just doesn't work. Sorry, I know this is like a rant that is just like completely pointless at the beginning of an episode, but holy shit does it piss me off. It's been three hours. It's been three hours, Vodafone. I, I'm possibly longer, because I got into the office three hours ago, and it's just, it's just not been working. And you just can't reach them. You just can't, you just can't contact them. They don't like that. And then you look it up on their online outage thing. It's just like, your address isn't valid. And it's like, <laughs> I live in a big street in a major city. How is my address not valid? Good Lord. Sorry, we're, we're here to do an episode. This is Decoding the Unknown. I'm sorry. Welcome. My name's Simon. I host this show. Uh, it's all about, um, God, I'm so filled with rage. I'm struggling. <laughs> It's all about mysterious things, and we try to uh, poke holes in the mystery and try to figure out what's actually going on, and that's what we're going to be doing with the Voynich Manuscript today, the world's most mysterious book. Thank you, Kevin, who wrote this script. I've never read this before, so we're going to go through it together. I'm going to read it. You're going to listen to me reading it. You're also going to listen to my various thoughts on it. I'm familiar with the Voynich Manuscript, of course. It's that one with all those weird plants in it, and it's written in a language that no one seems to understand. Much like the, the language that the people at Vodafone tech support speak, which isn't a language because you can't speak to them! I've always loved the show The Twilight Zone. Aside from being generally creepy, the episodes frequently had clever and dark twists as well. Perhaps it was the frequency of unhappy endings that appealed to me. I was only a child when I first started watching The Twilight Zone, so seeing something with an unhappy ending was extremely novel and an original thing to me, though as an adult I now recognize that it's no different from every goddamn day on this forsaken planet. Holy sh**, Kevin. Getting dark, man. Getting dark. Even me, though, I'm like, God forsaken internet, people. I... <laughs> you gotta be careful what you say on the internet, because like, I was just gonna make a joke about, like, well, you know, terrorism, which I'm obviously not gonna do, because I'm not a terrorist. <laughs> but it's like, holy sh**. You can get cancelled for that. You can go to prison. I'm not going to do anything to Vodafone. I'm just going to quietly stew in my rage. <laughs> oh, maybe I just got hooked on the show because I loved Star Trek. Simon and I, same page. Ah, oh, Star Trek. And The Twilight Zone, an episode starring William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. I never got into The Twilight Zone. I know the it was a little bit before my time. I know Kevin's about my age. A little bit older than me, I think, if I remember correctly. Sorry, Kevin. And I don't know, I was in black and white, right? And all this stuff. I loved a show called The Outer Limits, which, as I understand it, had very Twilight, uh, Twilight Zone vibes. And I also loved the same things. They're like, there'd be endings. And it's like, oh my god, wait, the aliens took over the world and everyone dies? Oh, no! And yeah, I loved that show. I tried rewatching it recently. I think I've told the story before. And uh, it just felt very, very dated. 
was like saying to my wife, we've got to watch The Outer Limits. There's this great show from back in the 90s. We tried the same thing with sliders. And she's like, fact boy, this is rubbish. What are you talking about? And I'm like, it's not rubbish. It's just dated. It's just dated. It was really good back in the day. Believe me. Sliders. As much as I enjoyed the show, however, there was one episode that always bothered me even as a kid. The twist was cute and it made sense, but the reveal is so far outside the realm of possibility that I could never get over it. The episode is also one of the most famous and highly rated episodes in Twilight Zone history. If you haven't figured it out by the subject of today's episode, I am of course talking about To Serve Man. I don't even know how this relates. Was the Voynich manuscript somewhere in the Twilight Zone episode To Serve Man? I feel like I should go and watch this before recording this episode, but I obviously can't because my internet's not working. Did I mention that? Oh, Wi-Fi's down. No, 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 no! For anyone unfamiliar, a race of aliens called Kanamits comes to Earth to solve all of our problems. Brilliant. <laughs> Welcome, Kanamits. Come, come. What can you do about this baldness that I'm suffering from? And they're like, fact boy, we've got other things to worry about. I was like, uh, 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 worry about those later. Mm -mm. This is an easy fix, isn't it, Kamenites? Come on. People are highly skeptical, but after the aliens provide cheap renewable energy and eliminate all hunger and war, humanity decides that these Kanamits might be all right after all. I get the feeling that's not going to end well, is it? They're going to like children of menace or something. However, after the first meeting with the UN, one of the Kanamits leaves behind a book. I'm not going to complain that it makes no sense for him to have brought this book to the UN in the first place, or that it was clearly left behind intentionally, because, well, the plot needs to happen. What bothered me is what happened next. Military cryptographers immediately got to work trying to decode the book. They're able to quickly decipher the title as To Serve Man, but they're stumped on the rest of the book. Apologies for the spoilers to the 60-year-old piece of television, but eventually one of the cryptographers deciphers the rest of the book and she reveals that it's a cookbook oh no <laughs> the aliens want to eat us oh no to serve man means to serve us as a dish oh 60 year old tv is spoiled now the aliens true motivation makes sense as a twist additionally if advanced extraterrestrials really were to come and visit earth solving all of humanity's problems in exchange for occasionally harvesting some of us as food is probably the best case scenario of how that plays out in reality I feel like Simon is going to pause there to try and think of a better realistic alternative and hopefully fail, but if he proposes something more optimistic, please don't be fooled, dear listener. I think we can agree that the world's had enough of British men trying to trick the rest of us into thinking colonialism isn't all that bad. <laughs> well, I'm glad I didn't now, Kevin. Jesus. Anyway, back to my petty complaining about classic television. You and me both, Kevin. You complain about classic TV, and I'll complain about the holes at Vodafone. <laughs> Even as a kid, to serve man bothered me because how the fuck exactly would cryptographers actually translate it? It wasn't English to put through some complex coding algorithm as an entirely alien language. Steady on. Oh no, wait, they didn't manage to decode the hieroglyphs, did they? They had to find the Rosetta Stone and then they were like, now we know. So no, it wouldn't work. Kevin's right. Kevin's always right. Why do I question Kevin? Just, I should just just, just accept what Kevin says as the gospel truth. Because all we know, the gospel is completely true. It wasn't in English to put through some complex coding algorithms in an entirely alien language. Even if, and this is a big if, they were somehow able to correlate the hieroglyphs with Roman characters to make it pronounceable to us, well, then what? There's no frame of reference. It would be a bunch of random sounds that bore no meaning to anyone on Earth. We would have no idea what these words meant, what the sentence structure was, or even what direction oh, we were supposed to be reading it. That's why the Rosetta Stone was such an important discovery. There we go. Before its discovery, no one could read ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, and it was certainly not for lack of trying. For nearly 2,000 years, braggarts would gaze upon the ancient Egyptian markings and think, I can translate that, only to waste their entire lives on a fool's errand. Luckily, arrogance was abolished by the 1500s. Oh, good. I didn't realize. <laughs> 
So this definitely is not a story about people futilely spending the last 400 years trying to decode the mystical secrets held within the Voynich Manuscript, the most mysterious book in the world. The book. Before we get into the history of all of this, let me explain what the Voynich Manuscript actually is. This manuscript is a 225-page illustrated book that is generally broken up into six sections. According to a rather patronizing description on Wikipedia, quote, the text consists of over 170,000 characters with spaces dividing the text into about 35,000 groups of varying length, usually referred to as words. <laughs> Thanks, Wikipedia. Good job. It's like I could look at Lorem Ipsum and be like, I know Lorem's a word, and I, I, I'm i not the brightest man, but I know that Lorem and Ipsum, those are two words. I don't know what they mean, but they are words. Thanks, Wikipedia. I feel smarter already. The six sections of the book are not an explicit delineation from the manuscript itself, but rather a way that they've been categorized as a result of their art. The first and largest section is the herbal section, making up about half of the codex. Each page consists of a picture of a plant, or on rare occasions, two pictures with complete paragraphs of text, presumably about the plant. While some of the pictures of the plants look realistic and likely identifiable as actual plants, many are more foreign and abstract in nature. For Simon and our YouTubers, is an example of one of the pages of the herbal section. It's on the next page. Oh, Kevin, I'm just reading on my iPad, so it's just it's just right here. For uh, people listening at home, honestly, it looks like a plant that's drawn by a seven-year-old. And then there's some text next to it that looks like squiggly words. Sort of like a mix between maybe Arabic and um, regular English alphabet stuff. Roman alphabet? Is that what it's called? A, B, C, D, you know? The one we're all familiar with. If you're watching this video, you're probably familiar with it. Right? A, B, C, D? You know what I'm talking about. Let's carry on. You can see that a lot of detail is put as the root structure of the plants, not just the stalk, leaves, and blossoms. Yeah, but it just looks like a weird, like, spirally root that could have been drawn by a child. A, a child could have drawn this. They can't even color in between the lines properly. You'll also notice that the page appears to be numbered at the top right, because this is an old fancy old timey book. It's written on parchment made from animal skin rather than paper. These pages are called folios. Fascinating. More specifically, each page is a bifolio that is then folded in half, which is generally how books are put together anyway. However, in this case, there is only a single page numbering for each bifolio, so the numbers go from 1 to 116, but despite it being an over 200 page book. More importantly, from the numbering, we know that 14 folios are missing. And now that there's an image involved, you can see the text itself. Of course, you can't if you're listening to this, can you? But I already described it, so you know what it looks like. You're so welcome audio listeners. Maybe this is where you could go just, if you're probably a listener on your phone, right? Maybe you're in the car, so don't do this, but just Google image search the Voynich manuscript spelt, hold on, V-O-Y-N-I-C-H. Although, honestly, Google's so, so amazing, you just type it in, it'll be like, you could type it in like V-A-U-G-H-N-I-Y-C-H, and it'll be like, oh yeah, you mean Voynich manuscript. Holy sh**, Google, you're so big brain. It probably looks a little bit familiar, right? I'm certainly not saying it's immediately identifiable, but it almost looks like a Romanized version of Arabic characters. Oh my god, Kevin. <laughs> you and I, same page. God, we're such big brains. It's the sort of thing that an expert might look at and say, I can translate that. Indeed, many have, usually believing it will be a trivial task, despite the swath's failed attempts that preceded their own. Despite the text looking like it should be approachable, it clearly is not. The next sections of the manuscript are the astronomical and cosmological sections. These are the most identifiable, because while many of the plants aren't drawn to look realistic for reasons that we'll address later, the astrological pictures contain a lot of familiar elements. The zodiac signs and other constellations 
constellations are present, but the locations aren't completely accurate, and some of the star maps look completely foreign. Probably because they're drawn by a child. He's not very good at drawing star maps. This is as good a time as any to address this, so let me get this out of the way. It's not f***ing aliens. Obviously, aliens was going to be a theory, and the astronomical section is used as evidence. Why are there foreign unknown stars, and why do the constellations not line up properly? from our point of view. While some think that these maps were based on the viewpoint of an entity located somewhere other than Earth, the much more likely scenario is that the author was just a shitty artist or didn't really care very much. <laughs> it'd be like, it'd be like someone's like, draw the Big Dipper, Simon, and I'll be like, bum, 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 bum. I'm drawing like a, the Big Dipper with my hands. And it's like, people are like, oh my God, it looks like the Big Dipper, but it's not quite right. He must be drawing it from another world. It's like, no, he just drew it freehand. He's just a bit shit. He looked up at the stars and was like, okay. <laughs> That, that, that. Yeah, it looks, it looks about right. It looks like a saucepan, doesn't it? Boom. If everyone already knows what Virgo Orion looks like, it's probably fine just to be close enough. Plus, with the book clearly written in some sort of secret code or language, all that really matters is that the author knew what it was supposed to be. And the author, whoever they may be, originated on Earth. <laughs> the third section is the balneological section. If you've never heard that word before, don't worry, apparently neither has MS Word Spellchecker. Balineology is the study of therapeutic bathing and medicinal springs. I mean, you could have a bath and it could be therapeutic, but it's not going to cure you of any diseases. Neither is a medicinal spring. Writing could be a very time-consuming process, especially writing hundreds of pages by hand. So my personal theory is that by this point in the manuscript, the author had got really horny and wanted an excuse to draw a bunch of naked chicks, and yes, they are centerfolds, sort of, they're not sexy but there are multiple folios that fold out to reveal a larger image. In addition to clearly being about bathing in some regards, the layout of the baths themselves seems to be anatomical in nature as well. For example, there's a picture of a bath that looks suspiciously like a pair of ovaries connected to the fetus by fallopian tubes. This is weird. It is exactly what's being described, except it's kind of like there's lots of babies in this weird green pond, and then these weird tubes with, like, cylinders outlining them. And then they go off to some sort of weird beehive-looking sh**. It's very strange, but I could draw- Ah, oh, maybe I couldn't draw a baby that good. Are these babies, or are these- no, they have breasts, so I'm assuming these are actually women. But they're all bathing in some sort of weird womb. This shit's pretty weird, dude, to be honest. Or for all you men out there who don't want to be concerned with pointless things like how female sexual anatomy actually works, here's a picture- Here's a picture of what you get if a seahorse fucked a dragon. Although, the dragon is actually from the herbal section. Is very- Oh, what? There's- Okay, there is. It, uh, sorry, I thought Kevin was talking about the previous picture, and I didn't really get it. But there's another picture here of the picture of, a, of what happens with a, when a seahorse fucks a dragon, and also it spews out green fire. Weird. It's pretty lame dragon too, but a lame dragon is still cooler than no dragon. The final two sections of the book are the pharmacological and recipe sections. The pharmacological sections features drawings of apothecary jars and specific portions of plants, especially a lot of plant roots. The recipe section is exactly what it sounds like, and it doesn't include any pictures. Each individual recipe is marked with a star in the margin, so the reader will know where one entry begins and the next one ends, which is a really nice touch of the author to include, despite making sure that no one would ever be able to read this book. When I first learned about the contents of the book, my initial thought was that it was a medieval version of the old Farmer's Almanac, an annual publication for farmers and gardeners that includes information about planting, astrological charts, weather predictions for the entire year, and some random fun stuff thrown in. In this case, crudely drawn naked women and dragons, however. People much smarter than me have a better suggestion as to what the manuscripts contained. Old Farmer's Almanac? That sounds like, okay, there's some good information in there, like about planting. 
I'm not sure what astronomical charts are going to do. And look, back in the day, no one's predicting the weather for the entire year, other than being like it's probably going to be warmer in the summer and spring. It's going to get colder in the autumn and towards winter. <laughs> They're like, great work, Farmer's Almanac. It's totally different to last year. I'm glad I bought this new one. While the exact contents aren't known, it is believed that this was some sort of scientific manual. Of course, when I say scientific, it's important to remember that at the time this was written, science and magic weren't grouped into the same category. And there's likely a lot of alchemical information inside the codex, as well as medical. With the book being impossible to read, literally anything could be contained on these pages. Maybe it holds the secrets of the Philosopher's Stone, the cure for cancer, or maybe it's just a bunch of now-debunked pseudo-scientific herbal remedies. All we can say for sure is that, until the unknown is decoded, all of these options will be equally likely. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not equally more likely. It's most likely to just be bullshit. Meet Wilfred Voynich. Now that we have at least an idea of what the manuscript looks like, it's time to try and figure out where it came from. Despite the mysterious nature of the Codex, we actually know a lot more about where the book came from and where it's been than what we know about what it says. And naturally, it gets the name Voynich Manuscript from its previous owner, Wilfred Voynich. Wilfred was born in 1865 in a Polish-Lithuanian noble family in then the Russian Empire, now present-day Lithuania. His original name was much more Polish, but given the roughly 15 to 1 consonant of our ratio in Polish words, I'm not going to punish Simon by making him try and pronounce it. Wilfred was a studious young man who pursued chemistry, chemistry at Moscow University and became a licensed pharmacist. Despite being educated, well-employed, and of noble birth, Wilfred wasn't very happy with the state of the Russian Empire. It was a time of great upheaval in Russian society and marked by massive repression of the citizenry and multiple assassination attempts on the Tsars, one of which was successful. During this time, Wilfred joined the proletariat, a Polish revolutionary nationalist group. During an attempt to free fellow revolutionaries from a Warsaw prison, he was arrested and shipped off to Siberia. For the nerdy Wilfred, this wasn't bad at first. He treated it as another trip to college, constantly reading and studying. <laughs> I guess he didn't have to do any like gulag labor then, did he? As a result of his imprisonment, he somehow developed a permanent stoop as well as contracting tuberculosis, an antibiotic for which wouldn't be developed until 20 years after his death. That's depressing, isn't it? Man, I'm so glad we live in a world with antibiotics. Just, just appreciate that. Just appreciate how good that is. It's so good. My internet might not work, but I've got antibiotics. I mean, I'm not on the right now or anything, but it's like if I got an infection, it's like most likely I'll be fine. My granddad was just in hospital with an infection. He's an old ass man. And you're like, he's like really sick. He's like, oh, you know, it's like, okay. He's like in his mid 90s. And they just like hook him up to some antibiotics and they're like, let's clear him out. It's like, okay. And then he leaves hospital. And you're like, holy sh in a few days. Antibiotics, everybody. Despite the lack of treatment for the lung disease at the time, over the next 40 years, it would never once occur to the well-educated Wilfred that maybe, just maybe, he should stop chain smoking. Ah, the past. The glorious time when it was like, smoking is awesome and good for you. Now it's just like, smoking is awesome but destroys your body. I don't smoke. I, I, I smoke cigars occasionally. I don't smoke cigarettes. Never have. But it's like, I love the smell of cigarettes. The burning smoke of like a good cigarette smells great. I've tried cigarettes, of course, like everybody. Um, but it's like, yeah, this is really nice. I could really get addicted to this shit, so I don't smoke because it will destroy my body. But imagine back in the day, the glorious timer is like, this thing that's amazing, that's amazing. It's also good for you. Helps you lose weight, all of this stuff. No damage to your lungs. Marlborough told me. <laughs> in 1890, after three years of imprisonment, Wilfred finally decided that even with plenty of time to read and study, being a Siberian prisoner didn't really suit him. It took three attempts, but he was able to escape with the use of a fake passport. He first escaped into Mongolia, then traveled to Peking, and then to Hamburg. By this point, he was out of money, so to acquire a ticket to London, he had to sell his jacket and eyeglasses, which I'm sure made 
the already unpleasant voyage by boat cold and boring. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, it's telling your coats. They're not my glasses, I need those to read. It's the only form of entertainment I have. Once Wilfred arrived in London, he set out trying to find fellow revolutionary Sergius Stepniak. This took him quite a while, as the address he carried on a slip of paper was written in Russian, but he finally found a local who could read it and direct him to Stepniak's residence in the East End of London. One of Stepniak's associates was a woman by the name of Ethel Lillian Bull. There was a story that Wilfred had looked out of his prison window on Easter Sunday in 1887 and saw Ethel there in a black dress. This is probably just romanticized bullshit. I've had crazier coincidences in my romantic life, so I'll just give his completely unverifiable story the benefit of the doubt. Well, that's nice of you, Kevin. I'm like, that shit never happens. <laughs> they continued their work as revolutionaries founding the Society of Friends for a Free Russia. A few years after their revolutionary work began from London, Stepniak died in a railcar accident. Wilfred stopped his political activism shortly after this, though the untimely death of his friend and colleague was only one of the precipitating factors. Another important factor was that there's not a lot of money in activism. Wilfred and Ethel have been romantically involved and living together, but London isn't exactly known for being affordable, so it's time to go and get real jobs. <laughs> Reality bites, doesn't it, Wilfred? It's like, yeah, no, I really love doing this thing, but, uh, you know, unless you're a lottery winner or you got a trust fund, mate, you got to at some point get a job, don't you? The final factor that led to the decision was the views of other revolutionaries. Their general opinion was, you know, we really hate Tsar Nicholas II and the entire Romanov dynasty, but we kind of hate Wilfred more. That's right, Wilfred Voynich was a bit of a dick, and without his friend there to vouch for him anymore, it was probably best if he and his abrasive attitude just went their own separate ways. With their revolutionary work behind them, it was time to make some cash money, baby. Ethel became a successful novelist and translator, most famous for her book, The Gadfly, while Wilfred, I feel like I've heard of that. Have I really heard of that, or have I heard of something similar to that? Because that's quite the coincidence. While Wilfred became an antiquarian bookseller and opened a shop in London in 1898. In 1902, after 10 years of living as husband and wife, the couple would finally marry and Wilfred would get his British citizenship. It was this time that he had his name anglicized to Wilfred Voynich. The following year was when the mystery of the Voynich manuscripts would begin. A Jesuit college at Frascati outside of Rome was holding a secret book sale, selling off some of their collections of the Vatican Archive. One of the reasons the sale was a secret was because the Vatican Storehouse was literally called the Vatican Secret Archive until 2019, when they changed the much less tantalizing Vatican Apostolic Archive. Vatican Secret Archive. Because when it's Secret Archive, it's like there's all sorts of secret shit in there. It's like, nah, it's just the old name for our library. It's disappointing. I even made a video once about things that might be hidden inside the Vatican Secret Archives, and it was absurd, because obviously none of the shit was actually hidden in there, because it's all bullshit. But that video got lots of views because people click on that shit so hard. We should do a decoding the unknown about the Vatican Secret Archives. It would it would do well. It would make old fact boy some money. The other reason it was a secret is that the Jesuits selling the books didn't actually have permission from their superiors to do so. How the hell Wilfred ever found out about this sale is unknown, but he was somehow able to insert himself into the negotiations. It took a full nine years for a deal to finally be reached, which really makes you wonder how the sellers were never caught and by the higher-ups of the seminary. Wilfred was able to purchase a lot of various books, and included among them was the manuscripts that would receive his name. He had already sold off several of the books before even making his way back to London. This wasn't about intellectual curiosity or preserving knowledge, it was about cold hard cash. Well, of course it was, he was a bookseller. 
It's literally how he makes his money. We can't judge him for being like, oh, and then he didn't preserve the books for posterity because he's not a f museum. We already discussed this. He didn't win the lottery. He doesn't have a trust fund. He has to make some money. That's okay. But you should have preserved them. No, that is precisely why Wilfred did not sell the manuscript while flipping the other items that it purchased. He immediately recognized that this book was something special. It was something unique. It was something that was going to make him a goddamn fortune as soon as he decoded it. But before that could happen, Germany decided they wanted to take over the world. Sick of fighting for his beliefs when there was money to be made instead, Wilfred and Ethel moved to New York in 1914 and he opened a second bookstore. The following year, the world would finally get their first look at the Voynich Manuscript. A little light went on on my internet router. My internet's back, baby! It only took you three and a half hours, Vodafone. I expect that taken off my bill. They're never gonna do that. Of course they won't. Fucking dickheads. Six degrees of Roger Bacon. When Wilfred first reveals the mysterious Codex of the World in 1915, it was not under the name The Voynich Manuscript, but as the Roger Bacon Cipher Manuscript. He had organized several exhibitions to show off nearly 300 of his most valuable books and manuscripts, touring Princeton University, New York City, the Art Institute of Chicago, and two stops in Michigan. It was at these Michigan exhibitions, after the manuscript had started gaining notoriety, that he would reveal the story of the book's origins. The first half of the story is a total lie. He claimed to have found it and other manuscripts in a castle in Austria, where not even the castle's owner had known they existed. Before we disregard everything Wilfred is going to say as a lie, it's important to remember that he had to keep the true origin of his illicit book deal secret. The works he purchased from the Jesuits, as well as those purchased by the Vatican, all had a page of bibliographical notes attached to the front cover, including a typed piece of paper that read, From the Library of P. Bex, which was glued to the page. Wilfred had removed these pages to conceal the sale, and his tale of Austrian castles was a lie of necessity. What was not a lie was the letter it found hidden within the front cover of the manuscript. The letter was written in 1665 by Johannes Marcus Markia, doctor and alchemist from Prague, to Athanasius Kircher, a Jesuit scholar and polymath in Rome. Marty had inherited the book from a friend of his, a friend who had obsessively toiled over translation attempts and who also had tried to contact Kirchner about it before. Both Marcy and his friend believed that Kirchner was the only person in the world to be able to decipher the manuscript. Marcy goes on to state that Dr. Raphael, the Czech language tutor of King Ferdinand III, told him the manuscript had previously been owned by Emperor Rudolf. Rudolf allegedly paid 600 ducats for the book. Raphael also claimed that the original author of the book was English philosopher Roger Bacon, though Marcy withheld judgment on that matter. As for the purchase price, in terms of currency valuation slash buying power, 600 ducats would have been equivalent to a little over $15,000 in today's money. However, ducats were gold, and the value of 600 ducats of gold is worth over $125,000. Either way, it's a very expensive book. And also, people should have bought gold, right? Wilfred seemed to take this letter at face value, believing that Roger Bacon was indeed the original. That's not true, though, is it? Shouldn't have bought that. You should have just put that £15,000 in, like, the market and waited, because then you'd be, like, a billionaire or something crazy. When was this? Like, back in the day? Hundreds of years ago? Yeah, yeah, you'll be, you'll be good. You'll be real good. Wilfred seemed to take the letter at face value, believing that Roger Bacon was indeed the original author, especially as he was known for writing in code. He also felt that given everything that was known about the book, $100,000, that's $1.4 million today, was a perfectly reasonable asking price for the manuscript. He was wrong, and he would die in 1930 without it ever having been sold. Ethel became the sole owner of the manuscript until her death in 1960, when it was inherited by her close friend and Wilfred's former secretary, and nil. Wilfred had been very detailed regarding the rules for the sale of the manuscript, and finally, less than a year after becoming the owner, 
Anne Neil found a buyer. The codex was finally sold to New York book dealer Hans P. Krauss, though Anne got less than a quarter of Wilfred's asking price. Hans purchased the book for $24,500. However, he felt that Wilfred's appraisal of the book was accurate, and he immediately offered it for sale for $160,000, roughly the same price Wilfred had been asking for or when adjusted for inflation. But look, things are worth what people are willing to pay. It's like you can value it or whatever you want, but if you can't sell it for that price, then it's not worth that much and your valuation's incorrect. That's just economics, isn't it? Hans's attempts to sell the manuscript saw no more success than Wilfred's had, and after eight years he gave up and donated it, along with Marcy's letter, to the Beidecker Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University, where they remain today. Until the 1990s, there seemed to be no documentation of the manuscript existing other than the book itself and the single letter from Marcy, leading many to believe that the book was a hoax perpetrated by Wilfred in an attempt to make some money. This theory has been thoroughly debunked, so if the manuscript is genuine, then where exactly did it come from? Who was the previous owner that gave the book to Marcy? And if it had indeed belonged to Emperor Rudolf, who did he acquire it from, and why did he pay such a large amount for it? Was the manuscript indeed authored by Roger Bacon in the 13th century? Are we really absolutely sure that it wasn't written by aliens? Yes, Kevin, we are! Proof of provenance. So far, we know that Wilfred obtained the book from the Jesuits at Frascati. Despite there being no definitive record of where the book was held for the 200 years prior to then, we have a pretty good idea. Later letters from Marzi revealed that he did eventually send the complete book to Kircher. Upon Kircher's death, it would have been sent to the Collegia Romano, along with the rest of the correspondence where it was stored and ignored for almost two centuries. This is all but confirmed by the paper reading from the private library of P. Beck. We mentioned that we mentioned earlier a clue Wilfred had completely ignored in his research. Petrus Bex was the head of the Jesuit order and the Roman college's rector in the mid-1800s. He must have taken the manuscript for his personal collection, which was later transferred to Frascati, while Wilfred purchased it. It was long speculated that the person who owned the Voynich manuscript before Marti was Czech alchemist Georgius. Barshkius, who worked at the court of Rudolf II. It was known that Marcy had inherited Barshius' collection of alchemical books upon his death, which was before 1665, so it was a reasonable assumption. In 1999, this assumption was proven to be true when the full archive of Kircher's correspondence was published online. Among Kircher's correspondence was the letter from Barshkius that had been alluded to in Marcy's letter. The letter described what he referred to as a riddle of the Sphinx, an undecipherable manuscript he described at great length and whose description matches that of the Voynich manuscript. Barshius requests the aid of Kircher and includes copies of some of the pages that he made himself by hand. It was believed that Kircher never replied to the letter from Barshius, and that would not have been surprising. The letter from Barshius is described as arrogant and self-important by its translators, and Kircher was a really big deal, not the sort of person some minor alchemist should have addressed in that sort of tone. But in the 2000s, a Czech historian discovered a reply letter from Kircher to Barsius. To contextualize the reply, Barsius' reply would have been roughly equivalent to a high school student asking Stephen Hawking about with his physics homework. Kircher's letter essentially said, I'm not impressed by this cute little stegnographical book you sent me. I have solved many of these before, and I could easily do it again with this one. You wouldn't even need to be particularly smart to solve it. I could do it, but I'm far too busy and important. <laughs> Obviously not a direct quote, but the meaning and tone are accurate. Kircher was the top scholar of his day, who frequently palled around with emperors, and his disdain for alchemy certainly didn't help Barsius's unsolicited 
request either. With the previous owner now being confirmed as Barshius, the question then became a matter of how he had received it. He was a minor court official, and if the book had belonged to Emperor Rudolf, it would seem unlikely that it would have fallen into his hands other than by illicit means. To understand how this could happen, we have to understand Rudolf himself. Despite being the Holy Roman Emperor, pretty important dude, Rudolf really couldn't be bothered with political affairs. <laughs> this is the problem with like dynasties, right? It's like, you're just like, oh, it's, it's, you're, you're born. And then like, guess what? You're going to be king one day. It's like, I don't want to be king. I want to be a musician, dad. Come on. Good news, you get to be king. He's like, you don't have to work. You're powerful. He's like, I don't want it. That's the problem when people are born into things. I'm watching another bloody TV show called Goliath. And it's like, it reminds me of Succession, where it's like, there's this law firm, and they've just, the, the main lawyer's just left it to his daughter and his ex-wife. It's like, with Succession, the old man's just left it to his sons and daughter to run the company. It's like, how about you find someone, you know, who's uh, competent? This nepotism is never a good idea because you're really limiting your hiring pool. And the chances that your children or, you know, whoever, are going to be the right people to lead your empire? It's really small. It's really small. Just go to a business school or go to another company and poach someone. Come on. Succession's the worst example of this. It's like, dude, just hire someone from another company. What are you doing? And then all the children could go live on an island. It's fine. And not like banished to an island like Elba. I mean, like, there we go, buy an island because they'll all be so rich from all the work that, you know, the capital. It's capitalism. Come on. But speaking of that, I am looking forward to my firstborn son taking over my YouTube empire. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. He lived in Prague, where he was far more interested in scholarly pursuits with his circle of friends, including the likes of Johannes Kepler and Tycho Brahe. Rudolf loved collecting books, particularly books on alchemy and the occult. He would also pay more for these books than the 600 ducats allegedly paid for the Voynich manuscripts. Though the book is not present in the thorough and well-preserved catalogue of Rudolf's book purchases, neither are many of the other alchemical books he purchased, so this did not serve as proof one way or the other. The confirmation that Rudolf was almost certainly the owner came from the manuscript itself. On the first folio, Wilfred had discovered a faded, almost invisible signature. He was able to enhance the signature using unknown chemicals and discovered the signature looked like that of Jacobus Horsitsky de Tepenets. Although this signature had faded over the years, it can still be seen on the manuscript using ultraviolet light. De Tepenets was a well-respected alchemist and physician and was appointed imperial chemist. He quickly became one of Rudolf's favorites, and it is cited that in 1609 he cured Rudolf of a grave but unspecified illness. It is likely around this time that de Tepenets would have received the manuscript as a gift from Rudolf. However, it is also known that Rudolf died owing money to Tepenets, so the manuscript could also have been given to him towards payment of the debt. When the Holy Roman Empire owes you money, no, you just like, I shouldn't have to worry about that. He's the Holy Emperor. Although I suppose he could be like, I'm not paying you. What are you going to do about it, bitch? <laughs> Either way, the signature of Deptevinets, along with everything we know about Rudolf, gives credence to Marcy's claims that the book had once belonged to the emperor himself. The link between Tepanets and Bashkius is unknown, but more importantly, so is all of the history of the manuscript before it fell into the hands 
of Emperor Rudolf. We know that the Voynich manuscript remained in Prague from the time Rudolf purchased it until Marcy sent it to Kircher in Rome. Nothing definitive about the ownership before then is known, but there's still plenty more that we do know. For example, we know that either the claim that the manuscript was written by Roger Bacon is scientifically impossible, or that Bacon must have been an immortal vampire. And as we all know, he was an immortal vampire. She blinded me with science. There are a wide range of theories regarding the origins and purpose of the Voynich manuscripts. Far too many for us to cover. Instead, let's eliminate as many as possible. First, through the use of our good old friend science. With the paper trail of the origins of the mysterious codex having gone cold, it was time to examine the paper itself. In 2009, various sections of the parchment underwent radiocarbon dating at the University of Arizona. All of the samples gave consistent results dating from between 1410 and 1438. This was over a century after Bacon had died, so we can rule him out as a suspect. This almost certainly rules out the idea of it being a hoax by Wilfred himself, as he would have had to acquire a large amount of vintage parchment, all from almost exactly the same time period. Even for an antiquarian bookseller, that's a pretty big ask, especially when combined with the fact that a 2014 multi-spectrum analysis showed that the parchment had not previously been written on. One possible source of hope for narrowing down the book's origins came from the belief that the parchment was made from goatskin. This would have been important as goatskin was used almost exclusively in Greece. It was known that the bindings and cover of the book itself was made of goatskin, but bindings are obviously much thicker and thus more identifiable than the parchment itself. The aforementioned 2014 study also included protein testing, which proved that the parchment itself was actually calfskin. Unfortunately, calfskin was the most common parchment in all of Europe for this time period, so that didn't narrow things down. The reason the cover and parchment are different materials is that the book appears to have been rebound at least once. There are insect holes on the first and last pages of the parchment indicating the original cover was likely wooden and was replaced following insect damage. The next step was to analyze the ink. The text and outlines of the drawings were made with a quill pen using iron gall ink. Paints are mineral-based with crushed azurite for the blue, a red ochre, and hematite for the red, and so on. Those materials are all appropriate for a book created in the 15th and the 16th century. All of this is said, like, if this is a forgery, like a later forgery, I mean, that doesn't mean... I think that I personally believe, but spoiler alert, that... Not spoiler alert, but, I, you know, I'm familiar with this from... You know, I've done videos about the Voynich Manuscript before, for sure. Um, I believe it was just a prank by someone back in the day, like hundreds of years ago. And this pretty much rules out the fact that it was a book made later, in later centuries, to look old. Because that would be an incredible forgery. You've just been pranked, you idiot! And there are no anachronistic materials anywhere in the Codex to indicate it's a modern forgery. There we go. Scientific analysis of the materials used to construct this manuscript indicate that it was genuinely produced by someone in the 15th century, though this does not mean the text is meaningful in any way instead of gibberish. An interesting tidbit about the paint is that it would have all required immense skill. Painting using mineral paint is difficult, and the larger the crystals, the more difficult it is. And despite that, it sort of looks like it was made by a child. To achieve the bright, vibrant colors seen in the manuscript, it would have required painting with large crystals, and the author seems to be extraordinarily technically talented at using these paints. However, in terms of actual artistic ability, many of the paintings seem of childlike quality at best. Yes. Personally, I'm not sure whether or not this actually means anything. I'm confident I could have learned to create these mineral-based paints and to effectively apply them to parchment, but I would never have been able to paint anything that looked like anything. Still, this juxtaposition is often brought up as significant, so I guess standard expectations of the artistic ability of any learned individual were a lot different during the Middle Ages. 
Words, words, words. So, let's take a closer look at the text of the manuscript itself, as that is where the true meaning of this document lies. Assuming that there is any meaning and it's not just total nonsense. The words are made up of characters, forming a never-before-seen language that has, that has come to be known as Voynichese. That language consists of 25 different letters, with uppercase versions of a few of the letters. And I'm looking at a little table now of what people... It seems to be like people have tried to match them up to the Roman letters, but not very successfully. And obviously because it just it doesn't look right. From the viewpoint of a native English speaker, the use of some of the letters is a bit odd in terms of analyzing the structure of the actual words. Some letters only appear at the beginning of a word, some only appear at the end, and some can only be in the middle of a word. Some letters are never followed by other specific letters, and some letters can appear two or even three times in a row. The fact that there are letters that can be used at the beginning or end of words, but never in the middle, is unheard of in Indo-European languages, which led many people to believe that Voynichese is based in Hebrew. However, a statistical analysis of the distribution of the letters and their correlations found that the language is much more similar to Mandarin Chinese pinyin, Romanized text of Chinese, than it is to other proposed languages. There are also two peculiarities that make deciphering the language so difficult. One is that there's an abnormally high repetition of words that only differ by a single letter. The next is that some of the more common words in the manuscript can appear up to three times in a row. Both of these result in any simple substitution decryption method to invariably result in gibberish. However, this assumes that all of these words are meaningful. In the analysis of the materials of the book, it was found that the parchment was essentially flawless. There were no signs that the author had made a single correction. Once pen was put to paper, that was the end of it. It seems utterly impossible to construct such a massive manuscript without making a single mistake, even when copying from a first draft. So it's quite possible that some of the words are the results of accidents and were just left in as any visible corrections could give the reader hints to how to decode the text. Wow, yeah, I didn't think about it. I was like, why? How? Okay. To avoid giving hints. That's interesting. So, if some of the words could have no meaning, is it possible that none of the words have meaning and the book really is a hoax, just one originally created hundreds of years before anyone important got their hands on it? Well, anything is possible if you try hard to believe in it yourself, but in this case, it's not very likely. Okay, so it's not very likely this is a hoax? I really thought this was a hoax. A 2014 study out of the University of Sao Paulo analyzed the frequency and relationship of the various words throughout the text. They used this data to create a three-dimensional model of the book's structure and word frequency. When compared to the models generated by other books, in 90% of cases, the Voynich manuscript had a similar model, meaning that the book is almost certainly an actual language and not a complicated farce. Wow, I didn't even know, I didn't know that fact. That's crazy. Okay, that completely changes it. So this could be decipherable, which is crazy, because people have been trying forever. Are we going to one day invent a supercomputer that can do this? That'd be great. And it'll just turn out to be some boring alchemy book, you know, how to make gold. And people will try and it won't work, obviously. It's also theorized that the manuscript was written by more than one person, each performing slightly different forms of encoding. This has resulted in sections being broken down into Voynichese A and Voynichese B. Naturally, this will only result in making the manuscript even more challenging to translate. So I really wish Kirchner hadn't been so busy otherwise. Oh, he could have had this entire book decoded centuries ago. But why? Now at this point, you might be shouting your scream, but Simon, and also to a lesser extent, Kevin, why? What could possibly be written in this book that required this level of secrecy? 
Well, as for the answer, it's almost certainly disappointing, but it is also the reason that secrecy was required. The parchment dates back to the early to mid 1400s, and we know that until Marcy shipped it to Rome, it spent much of its time in Prague. At the time, Prague was both the capital and cultural center of the Holy Roman Empire. The parchment itself also dated to just before the Inquisition, meaning that the Inquisition may have already begun while the text was still being written. There's a large misconception that the church was anti-science, though many great scholars of the day were actually members of the clergy. Who else in those times had the resources free time and education to leisurely engage in intellectual pursuits oh i see i see where kevin is going with this one church and science don't, you know they don't get super along so there's going to be something written in this book was it copernicus who was also like religious and then he also was like hated by the church because he was like we're not the center of the universe it's like oh no copernicus but i think someone is writing in this something that's like slightly heretical and they're encoding it so the church doesn't see it that makes sense but then why haven't we been able to decode it because uh, we don't have a reference do we but we've decoded so much stuff, come on, let's go! Though they were generally fans of intellectual endeavors, specific fields that might challenge the church's established views risked being seen as heresy. At a time when miasma theory was regarded as fact, both medical and alchemical studies were often conducted in secret and their textbooks were written in code. Miasma theory is that one where it's like people thought diseases came from bad smells, so they try to avoid bad smells so they didn't get sick. And it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's probably gonna help. But it's not how it works. But good guess, guys. Good guess. Codes in our chemical books to be shared with others were usually relatively simple, perhaps including a simple substitution cipher combined with a lot of abbreviated Latin. However, there was also the matter of trade secrets. If a researcher felt they were close to turning lead into gold or cracking the secrets of the Philosopher's Stone, naturally they would not want anyone reading their work. Even Leonardo da Vinci's personal notes were written using mirror writing, literally just writing everything backwards so that it had to be looked at through a mirror. So so, between fears of religious persecution and paranoia over having one's work stolen, enciphered messages such as this were common, to the point that Kircher couldn't even be bothered to look at this one out of curiosity. Obviously, we've never seen anything with such a sophisticated level of encryption before, but that doesn't mean the contents of the book themselves are anything extraordinary compared to other contemporary works. As we've mentioned, this is almost certainly some sort of medical and or alchemical book. This checks the boxes for all the sections of the book. The herbal section would describe the various plants and their uses. For books of this particular era of the Middle Ages, the more abstract nature of some of the botanical paintings rather than any attempt at photorealism would be appropriate as the emphasis on the, at the time was on depicting the healing properties of the plant rather than artistic accuracy. The astrological sections been included because at the time astrology actually played a large part in medicine. <laughs> of course it did. The pharmaceutical and recipe sections of the book I would think are pretty obvious in terms of a medical book indeed. So that just leaves the baths. As we mentioned before, balneology is specifically the study of therapeutic bathing and medicinal springs. The baths being drawn in the shape of female anatomy combined with the many many naked women throughout this book have led many to believe that is specifically a book on women's health and like maybe reproductive like you go to these springs they drew them like the women's ovaries and they're supposed to help with your like fertility maybe so with everything else finally out of the way it's time to take a look at the top theories regarding the origins of the Boynik manuscripts authorship theories
There's a lot of different names that have been thrown around over the years as possible authors of the manuscript. Most have been debunked thanks to the carbon dating of the materials. Because of the consistent dating of the materials used to construct the manuscript, there are only two specific names that have not yet been ruled out. The first is Italian physician and engineer Giovanni Fontana. Giovanni fits the time period appropriately, and he was familiar with cryptography. Two of his books are encrypted, both use much simpler ciphers than the Voynich manuscript. His name has been suggested largely because he was active at the right time, was a physician, was familiar with some forms of cryptography, and because some of his illustrations kind of looks sort of like the images are in the manuscript. It's not a great argument, but it's theoretically possible. Why can it only be two people? There must be like millions of people alive at that time. We can't know possibly all of them. Couldn't this just be some prankster sitting in a like basement somewhere just drawing these things for fun? The other name comes to us from Nick Pelling, a programmer who worked on games like Mortal Kombat 2, Primal Rage, and Street Fighter 3 Alpha. Okay. Needless to say, the mysteries of the Voynich manuscript have garnered attention from all types of investigators. Nick put forth the theory that the author was Italian architect Antonio Avellino, better known as Filarete. While best known for his architectural work, Filarete mentioned a series of little works of secrets in one of his books. These undiscovered little works are presumed to have either been lost to time or never actually created, but Filarete claims that they were on topics of agriculture, spas, recipes, glassmaking, engines, and bees. <laughs> Obviously, we see some parallels there between those topics and the nature of the manuscript, and Nick goes on to suggest that many of the herbal pages are mechanical engines that were visually encoded to look like strange plants. Ah, uh, this one seems like a bit of a stretch, my dude. I'm assuming the engine part of that theory triggered attention from Simon. Very short one. <laughs> it seems like a stretch, my dude. And while I can't see what he said, I'm willing to bet that he and I are on the same page here. Filarete was a known associate of some of the top cryptographers of the day. But with the little works being either lost or imaginary, there is no proof that he ever published works on the topics that appear to be in the Voynich manuscripts. I find this theory to be dubious at best. Yeah, me too, Kevin. I don't think this one is very likely at all. But it is not yet disproven, and it's all also the coolest proposal out there. The absolute legends have been listening to Simon talk about a dusty old book for over an hour at this point. No, not quite, I guess I'm going fast today. So it'd be rather fulfilling to know that at the end of all it turns out to be instructions to build some badass 15th century steampunk engines rather than the more probable and mundane reality. Yes, yeah, so all these things, it's like the Voynich manuscript is super interesting. Uh, there must be like thousands of YouTube videos about this, right? And then as soon as we find out the reality, when we, if we eventually do, no one will care about those videos anymore because they'll be like, we figured it out and it's boring. It's like some scientists writing about herbal remedies from plants that don't exist anymore or that obviously don't work or any of that stuff. Then there'll be no more videos and no one will care because we'll have solved the mystery. As we know, mysteries are interesting and they get views. And speaking of probable and mundane reality, there is what I consider to be the most likely authorship theory of them all. The book was written by some rando that we've never heard of. There were about 80 million people living in Europe at the time the manuscript was written. Did you really think the author was going to be one of the 20 names you'd actually recognize? Exactly. Obviously, it would be cool if this was a childhood work of Leonardo da Vinci, a theory that has been proposed and largely dismissed, but it's just not very likely. Many of the details surrounding the book point to it being from northern Italy. One particular detail that receives a lot of attention is a sketch of a castle with swallowtail parapets known as a Ghibelline fortification. Okay, something that was only present in castles in the 15th century in northern Italy. A recent theory speculates that the author was almost certainly Jewish and that the baths depicted represent communal Jewish baths known as mikvahs, which are still used by Orthodox Jewish women to clean themselves 
after childbirth menstruation. I just learned about this reason. I went to Israel recently, and I just learned I, uh, my mate's been living out there for a year for work. And uh, I was like, he was telling me about this, and he's like, yeah, the women have to go to the rabbi, and he'll tell them if they've uh, if their menstruation period is over. And I'm like, that's fucked up. And he's like, dude, I know. <laughs> Religion's weird. The theory explains that the only place women would have been bathing together in Europe in the 1400s would have been in a mikvah. The theory is supported by the common proposition that Voychenese is at least partially based in Hebrew and by the fact that many of the women depicted in the manuscript are clearly visibly pregnant. That's the official stance on the drawings, at least personally, I thought they were just poor drawings with inconsistent proportions. But I'll default to the experts on this one. Yeah, they're just that <laughs> I didn't think they were pregnant. I, I didn't even know they were women until I was like, oh wait, they got breasts. They just look like weird babies in a womb. <laughs> we did briefly address the notion that this was a hoax created by Wilfred, Wilfred Voynich himself and the impossibility of that. But, well, not impossible, just extremely unlikely. But that does not mean that the book was made as a hoax in the 15th century. When both Wilfred and Hans Krauss got their hands on the manuscript, they immediately saw dollar signs. Some of the debunked theories speculated it was created as a hoax to be sold to Emperor Rudolf for piles of gold. And while the carbon dating indicates that it was nearly impossible that it was created specifically to bilk Rudolf, that doesn't mean it wasn't created to con a different target instead. Without knowing how Rudolf came into possession of the manuscript, it's impossible to trace back who the intended target of such a hoax would have been. Though the hoax theory is possible, I find this to be a bit unlikely as well as it would be a huge gamble. The manuscript appears to be copied from a draft, possibly by one or more people and possibly by people who couldn't read or understand what they were copying. This, combined with the sheer length of the manuscript, shows that it would have taken a lot of time and dedication. Obviously, that's not out of the question if the suspected payoff was worth it, but there was a big financial investment as well. The mineral paints used were not cheap, and while a higher quality manuscript would command a higher value, it's a big upfront investment based on speculation. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I mean, I do think, but the fact that the, the fact that the letters add up so perfectly, wasn't it like 90% like other languages? I've really changed my opinion on this. I don't think it's a hoax. I just think it's something we haven't managed to translate yet. I Do I think it's got some interesting stuff in it? No, definitely not. Still don't think so. Um, I, but I don't think it's a hoax anymore, just because, unless they were just like, but they came up with such a perfect cipher that no one's been able to crack. Language theories. There are three main categories as to how the text of the manuscript was written. These are that it's either plain text, encoded text, or meaningless. We've already addressed the likelihood that it's almost certainly not meaningless, though that is still possible, so that just leaves plain text and encoded. If the book is plain text, there are a few ways this would be possible. The first is that it's a natural language, which is to say any language that evolved through the natural course of human history by repeated use of words and sounds. Statistical analysis of the text shows many similarities to natural languages, one of the reasons it is likely not meaningless gibberish. This theory posits that the book is using a little-known natural language and an invented alphabet. In 1976, a linguist at the NSA speculated that it was hitherto unknown North Germanic dialect, while earlier proposals thought it might be an East Asian language. As for the nature of the invented alphabet, it's not as outlandish as it might sound. Spoken and written languages develop separately, and many natural languages had no written alphabet. Most famously, neither Russian nor Japan never developed a written language on their own. Japan learned how to write from Chinese in the 5th century, and Russia was taught the Cyrillic alphabet by St. Clement of Orid 
in the 9th or 10th century. It's possible that the author spoke an obscure natural language that had no written alphabet and decided to write their secret textbook in that language using an alphabet of their own creation so that no one else would ever be able to read it. In terms of the author ever needing to decode what they wrote down, this certainly seems like the most simple solution as they would simply be reading a book in a language that they knew how to speak rather than messing around with complex ciphers. The next possibility for the book being plain text is if it was a constructed language. Now that we've defined a natural language, I'm sure you can guess what a constructed language is. It's going to be like something made up, right? Like, is Esperanto would be an example of that? Like a language that people created on purpose? While the idea of a constructed language is all by our standards, the manuscript allegedly predates the concept of one by over a century. I don't care for that argument against it, because while the notion of a constructed language may not have been part of mainstream consciousness, it's not like it's some crazy idea that a person couldn't have come up with on their own, especially when trying to encode something. Ultimately, as the book is likely a medical text, there's always the possibility that it was a constructed language to make it more readable, not Alas, it's been hypothesized that this may have been a primitive attempt at a universal language, like a prototypical Esperanto. Boom! Kevin and I are definitely on the same page today. Considering such a language never gained enough notoriety for it to have been mentioned anywhere else, if true, it would certainly support the theory that the author wasn't actually anyone important in the grand scheme of human history. The final means by which this could be a plain text book is if it was written by a mentally ill person suffering from glossolalia or speaking in tongues. Apparently, being compelled to write large amounts of text is common in this condition, though the use of an invented alphabet is much rarer. Most researchers find this theory unlikely. I just thought it was fun that the whole thing could just be some crazy person writing down the voices in their head. The best part is that until the text is deciphered, there's absolutely no way to prove or disprove this theory. So we're saying there's a chance. It's just unlikely. It's going to be... I, I think it's probably a constructed language. That would be my vibe. But it's totally just a guess. Is it someone writing in tongues? Seems less likely. This brings us to the theories that the text is encoded in some way. But how? The issue with the book is that if it were a cipher, as was the prevailing theory for most of the 20th century, none of the ciphers that were consistent with the era the book was written in result in any meaningful text. This means that it's probably not a cipher, but a code. Which brings us back to everyone's two favorite tricks from the Cicada 3301 puzzles. That's right, it's time to talk about book codes. There's a theory that the entire manuscript is written using a book code, as the internal structure and length distribution of many of the Voynich's words look similar to Roman numerals. This theory seems a little absurd to me, as each page of text would contain so little information that if it were, if it were a book code, not to mention what a gruelingly unpleasant experience it would be for the author to need to decode it any time they wanted to remember what they wrote. Yeah, it's good, that's crazy. It would take forever. It would take forever to make and it would take forever to decode. But if the codebook cipher theory actually is true, even if the manuscript itself could be accurately translated to numbers, good luck finding the right book to apply those numbers to. Yeah, in this, in that case, it's lost. Like, you're gonna find the right book from the 14th century that decodes this book? It's never gonna happen. Next is steganography. The theory states that most of the text is meaningless, but that there are significant bits of data hidden among the text. It could be something as simple as the second letter of every word, or something more subjective like the length of certain pen strokes. In fact, there are contemporary examples of steganographical it's a long-ass word, works that use letter shape to conceal information. Unfortunately, this is extremely difficult to check as the exact 
correct method by which the meaningful information is hidden would be seemingly arbitrary, and it may not even be consistent throughout the entire manuscript. The final form of code would be the easiest for the author to read, and that would be if it's simply some form of shorthand. There are occasionally notes written in the margins in abbreviated Latin, and the final passage of the book is written in a combination of Voynichese and abbreviated Latin. It's possible that Voynichese is just the author's own form of shorthand that they either never talked to anyone else or that they presented and the scientific community rejected. Wrap up. For centuries, the Voynich manuscript was like the one ring forged by Sauron in the fires of Oradruin. Lord of the Rings reference, isn't it? No idea, never seen it or read it. It became the singular obsession of anyone through whose hands it passed. Then it was sent to Athanasius Kircher, who just couldn't be bothered and it went neglected until finally being unearthed by Wilfred Voynich. Since then, rather than being a singular pursuit, the search for an answer has resulted in the brightest minds of the world creating a fellowship of sorts. Sorry, Simon. No more Lord of the Rings references. Yeah, Kevin. I guess Kevin knows I don't. I don't know Lord of the Rings at all. Oh, fellowship. Oh, I see. Ah, I did get it, but now I get it because I know one of the because fellowship of the ring, right? Ah, ah. The manuscript has been intensely researched from every possible angle for over a century, and it really was the best and brightest working on cracking the book. The most talented code breakers from both world wars. The same people who cracked Germany's Enigma code have tried and failed to solve this riddle, even with our most sophisticated computing algorithms and statistical research. All that we've learned is that it almost definitely actually says something rather than being gibberish, but we're no closer to reading it than Marcy was 400 years ago. There have been many claims over the years of people saying they cracked the code, but each one has been systematically debunked. Many of these supported decryptions are ludicrous on the surface, involving highly subjective elements. In one particularly outlandish instance, the system for decoding the passage allowed a single page to be translated in a thousand different ways, all forming meaningless text. That's not that's not a system. That's not you've not done it then. You've not cracked it. An accurate solution to the manuscript would not be so fickle. Executive Director of the Medieval Academy of America, Lisa Fagan Davis, said it best when denouncing a particular 2019 claim that the manuscript had been translated, quote as with most would-be Voynich interpreters, the logic of this proposal is circular and aspirational. He starts with a theory about what a particular series of glyphs might mean, usually because of the word's proximity to an image that he believes he can interpret. He then investigates any number of medieval Romance language dictionaries until he finds a word that seems to suit his theory. He then argues that because he has found a Romance language word that fits his hypothesis, his hypothesis must be right. His translations from what is essentially gibberish, an amalgam of multiple languages are themselves aspirational rather than being actual translations. She goes on to describe his paper as self-fulfilling nonsense. While this is a particularly scathing review, it's ultimately the fate of any supposed claim to decode the manuscript. For all the effort that has gone into solving it, we're still absolutely no closer to solving the mystery of what is contained on those pages, who wrote it, or how it made its way, probably from Italy, Temper Rudolph in Prague. But you know what? That's totally okay. This show is about unsolved mysteries because solved mysteries are usually a lot more boring. Totally mentioned that earlier. Like when we find this, it's gonna be like no more videos about it because no one cares because it's boring. Considering the mundane reality that the manuscript is almost certainly just a medical book full of outdated and debunked remedies written by some random physician of little to no notoriety, the notion the longer we can hold on to the mystery, the better. Yeah, I kind of agree. Like this is gonna be so disappointing. It's like when you find out the truth.
trick behind the magic trick. You're like, oh, boring. Anyway, this has been an episode of Decoding the Unknown. Thank you so much for being here, watching or listening. If you're watching, smash that like button. Make sure you're subscribed. If you're listening as a podcast, hey, leaving a review really does help this show out. That would be amazing. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.